Hello and welcome to Serious About Sustainability, the podcast series brought to you by Mitsubishi Electric's Ikadan Air Source Heat Pump. I'm Max Halliwell from Mitsubishi Electric and this is a series of podcasts all about renewable home heating. We'll be covering a range of topics from the perspective of UK homeowners, self-builders, contractors and housing associations. Our show today is called Social Housing, the Sustainable Heating Solution, and I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, George Clark, architect and Ikadan ambassador. Welcome, George. Good to see you again. And you, mate. How are you getting on? I'm good. I'm good. I'm not bad at all, actually. It's, um, yeah, it's been a funny time with lockdown, hasn't it? We yeah. could do a whole lockdown podcast, couldn't we? We could but, do, but, yeah. But let's not. <laughs> let's stick to housing and, and wonderful heating systems. But that's... Um, yeah, it's been an interesting time. I, I actually made a, um, a new series for Channel 4 during lockdown. Oh, yeah. What was that called? Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you. Oh. I'm not allowed to tell you. I get shot. Um, it was quite unusual. It was quite eerie. So we were allowed to carry on work and we got permission from the government to be able to film. And um, we were an isolated unit. So all of the crew and me went into quarantine and then worked together as an isolated team for a while. It was, um, wow. it was an eerie, eerie experience, I have to say. It was very it, odd. I'll never forget it. It has been strange. And now we're merging into some form of new normality, whatever that's going to look like. I don't know so, what that is. Yeah. But actually, it's interesting that we're, um, you know, we're talking about homes and heating and stuff like that, because I think with lockdown, it's probably made us think about home in a very different way. Like even some of the big house builders are talking now about you know, creating live workspaces in their developments. Um, and like outdoor space, you know, there's poor people who have been locked up in their flats without a balcony or any out- outside space. It must have been horrendous, to be honest with you. I think you're right. I think, um, I think this new normal, this new way of working is probably highlighting to a lot of people the quality of their living space in yeah. terms of a usable place and spending a lot more time there. Definitely. And actually just... Um, I'm just looking at my phone because it's just come through today to say that um, Rishi Sunak, uh, the Chancellor, urged to build more social housing, because we're going to talk about social housing today. It says more than 60 housing groups, charities and industry bodies have signed a joint letter to the Chancellor urging him to put investment in social housing at the heart of his economic recovery plan. The letter to Sunak argues that the pandemic has further emphasised the need for high-quality, affordable homes. For many people, the lockdown has felt like a prison, in inverted commas, so that's a quote from someone. For many people, the lockdown has felt like a prison as they have been trapped in housing that's far too expensive and of poor quality with not enough outside space. Wow. And that's social housing. That's today. That is today. And I think, and actually, I think when... um, if you go back to when social housing started, I mean, it was launched in 1919 by uh, Dr. Christopher Addison, who was the health minister. We didn't have a housing minister because the state didn't build any housing, so it didn't exist. And the health minister created social housing as an initiative, uh, which you've probably heard of, called Homes for Heroes. So um, it was actually called Homes Fit for Heroes was the phrase that was used. And everyone thinks it was to build housing for um, people who had returned back from World War One. Well, tragically, less people came back. So you think, well, why do we need? Why did we need more housing? It was actually about providing housing of a better quality 
so that people were fitter and stronger and healthier to go to war. They think substandard poor quality housing before we went into World War I created certain men, not all, of course, but certain men who weren't fit enough or strong enough because of the substandard housing. And I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Like, you know, every Thursday night at eight o'clock, we've been standing on our doorsteps and clapping for the NHS. And for me, I was clapping for absolutely every single key worker, van driver, cleaner, everyone, you know, who got us through an awful time. And you think, well, a hundred years later, now more than ever, we're calling them heroes. So let's build truly affordable housing for them. What, what better way to thank the hardworking people of Britain than building truly affordable, genuine, ecological homes? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've got, I've got personal experience of this. I don't know if I mentioned to you, my, uh, during lockdown, my son's, um, he's a PE coach at a school in North London. Um, so he's been classed as key worker, yeah. um, been looking for the last couple of years to try and afford a house um, in London for young people. They just can't do it, you know? Um, well, that's the, the, so the big thing. So I did my um, George Clark's council house scandal last year um, on the 100th anniversary of the Addison Act. It was uh, July 31st last year because it's something that's close to my heart. I was brought up in a council estate. Um, my mum still lives there in the house. And it was a fantastic place to live. And they were genuinely affordable homes. The problem is now, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, is there's a massive affordability crisis. That's the big problem that exists in Brit British housing today. So over the last 20 odd years, the average house price has gone from £58,000 to £235,000. That's incredible. And that means that deposits to buy something have like more than quadruples, which is just yeah. insane. But the scary thing, the scary stat that really horrifies me is that on average, a full-time worker is expected to pay an estimated 7.8 times their annual earnings on purchasing a home. Now in 1979, it was three and a half times your earnings. So it was way more affordable in 79 for you to get a house. Three and a half times your annual salary is what the average house price was. Now, 7.8 times. Parts of London, 45 times the average salary. It's just nuts, basically. And at the same time, the number of um, households living in private rented accommodation, private rental sector, that's gone from 2.8 million people in 2007 to 4.5 million people in 2017. I mean, that's, that's mad. So that 21% of, of the total number of households are in private rent. 61% of a Londoner's salary goes on their rent. That is a 60%. number. So it's nuts. And, and that's why I've been calling. It wasn't just council housing, it was social housing. Um, unfortunately, I got a lot of people saying, oh, you know, you're pushing for council housing. They're all like freeloaders. They're on benefits. You know, the country can't afford it. And that's the awful stigma that's come about because we have such a low number of council properties around now they have to go to those most in need and a lot of those people are in quite desperate situations. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. But when on my estate, because I was brought up in a new town, so they had to build enough housing for 80,000 people or something, you know, it was phenomenal. Because they'd built such a high number of it, it went to people who were just good, hardworking people. They went to work. You know, they went on the dole. You went to work and you paid your rent um, for your council house and it was fine and it worked. It was a brilliant system. And the problem now, I think, is that because we've created a free market for house building, 
and there's a lot of money to be made in house building. You know, the, the profits of Persimmon the other year, people don't know this, was a billion quid. You know, the first house builder to make a billion pound profit. And um, Barrett's was 905 million, I think. Fine, they're companies, you know, they're there to make profit. Fine, that's what the free market is. But I think when we've got housing waiting lists of 1.15 million people on there, we've got 350,000 people officially homeless. Now, these aren't people like sleeping in doorways. They are some of those, obviously, but the, the, I call them the hidden homeless, basically, because it's people in temporary accommodation, bedsits. You know, it's the state has to make provision for genuinely affordable homes because the free market isn't designed to do that. The free market's to make a profit, build something and make as much profit as you can. Do you know what I mean? So because we've got this, and at the same time we've had right to buy and right to buy basically means that um, millions, literally millions of council houses have been taken out of the system. So I think we used to have like 6 million homes um, and then, Margaret Thatcher came along and brought in right to buy. And I think we're now at 2.5 million. So there's been millions of homes taken out of the system when there's increased demand. So we've got a real crisis looming. I mean, at the time of this recording, we're in the middle of um, the health crisis, COVID-19, and the government talking about a potential uh, recession that's looming. And the end of the furlough scheme, we may see um, many companies lay off people um, and unemployment yep. go up. So this... This need for social housing um, is only going to be exacerbated, potentially. Yeah, and, and um, I sat in front of the Common Select Committee um, before COVID-19 to talk about this. And uh, one person on the panel rightly challenged me and said, well, the, the country can't afford this. You know, where's the money going to come from? And the mad thing is that it, it actually can stack up as an investment for the country because, you know, we spend... Yeah. 25 billion quid a year on housing benefit. 25 billion quid a year on housing benefit. Now that's going to private landlords because we've only got a small number of council houses now. Obviously some housing associations, of course, but a huge amount of that money is going to private landlords. And so, yeah, there's money to be made in renting properties and the state is paying that into the private system. So if we're forking out 25 billion quid that's a staggering amount of money that could go into state house building that the state owns and it becomes an asset in effect for the country but with right to buy around there's no incentive for councils to build council housing because councils you know the government have just changed it so they can borrow now there's a borrowing cap that's been lifted on council budgets so they can borrow if they want to go and build houses but why are they going to go and build a house that someone can get at a discount in a few years time under right to buy. There's no incentive course, no for a council. Yeah. No, they're not going to do it. That would be mad. If you're, you know, the, the treasurers of councils have a staggeringly difficult job. I think they're superheroes, to be honest with you, because after years of austerity, they're juggling really, really tight budgets. Um, and there's no incentive for them to build council housing at the minute. So it's got to change. You need reform of right to buy. Uh, you know, there was a report that came out yesterday saying that, um, it could create £350 billion to the British economy over the next, I think it was six or seven years, for us to have a state house building programme because it's going to create jobs and all that sort of stuff. You know, so it's an investment. It's not a loss. It's not a co- it becomes a loss because of right to buy, 
to be honest. And the, the, but the one thing that people probably don't know is that um, so on, on the right to buy, if you get, let's say you get a big discount, you buy a house on the right to buy, everyone thinks the money goes straight to the council and they expect the council to replace the house that's been sold. Well, it doesn't, it goes to the treasury and the treasury take money off the top for other things. Yeah. And then some money goes back to the council, but it's nowhere near enough for them to replace the council house that's been sold off. So it's a completely knackered system. Wow, that's it's, it's knackered. I think most people think what you just said, that the money would automatically go back well, to the council and they'd be able to replace they get the unit. Some, they get some back. You know, but I mean, I'm an ambassador for shelter and they'll say we are all just a couple of steps away from being homeless. And I think um, it's been quite frightening, I think, during COVID-19 where you've seen a pandemic kick in and kind of show our vulnerability, I think, a bit, where people have been worried about their jobs and paying their bills. And you know, and to be honest with you, whether you're wealthy or not wealthy, even the rich have been hit by this, you know, because they've got businesses to run and staff to pay. And all, you know what I mean? And all right, they're not going to suffer because they've probably got some money in the bank, but it's not been great for the rich. You know, they've been battered, but the poor, my God, it's just been horrendous, you know, and we're going to see, yeah, Shelter are desperately worried that we're going to see those you know, homeless numbers rise and rise and rise because of people not being able to pay their bills. If you lose your job, and any of us could lose our job, I mean, it sounds awful to say it, but any of us could lose You do that, and then you can't pay your mortgage, and your house gets repossessed. That's it. That, and it's frightening, you know, the, the things that I've seen and what people have had to go through. It's, it's horrendous, you know? So you, and you, sometimes you talk about very well-educated people, good people, nice people who have found themselves homeless like that. And that's why, you know, shelter exists, really. Now, 350,000 officially homeless, 1.15 million people on the housing waiting list, 100,000 kids in temporary accommodation. <sighs> Could you imagine what cost that's having on other parts of the welfare state? It affects a kid's education, their health and well-being. You know, they have stress, depression, anxiety. Parents go through the same stuff. It's mad that the government departments don't really talk to each other enough. You know, housing will be over there, health will be over there. Or actually, if they all sat around the table together and went, hang on, so what is the cost of the NHS and what's the cost of the education system through that family being homeless? Not not just the cost of us paying for a bed and breakfast and temporary accommodation, because the taxpayer's got to pay that. We've got to, we've got to fund it. We've got to house them. You need to join these, these departments up. And you've got to join it all up, basically, because I think it's... A phrase I've said many, many times, if you've got a safe, secure, and stable home, one where you can genuinely afford it and it's not causing you distress or anxiety, you've laid the foundation stone for everything else to have a chance in the rest of your life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like your yeah. kids can have a good education. You could probably have a stable job. How can you go to work every day if you're homeless? You know, you're going to be panicking and stressing. Do you know what I mean? If you... It's awful. It's it's a terrible. Priority, it's, yeah. It? So you know, get housing right, and other things might just become a little bit easier. But to do that, the state need to build truly affordable homes because the private sector isn't designed to do it. And your housing associations do an incredible job, incredible job. Councils want to start building again, but central government's got to get their act together. Let's talk about. Um um, exemplar in terms of um, housing associations and uh, what they're doing at the yeah. moment and, and the pressures 
um, upon those organisations. Um, as you know, we work closely with many um, housing associations. Um, one of the um, housing associations we work with, a company called um, Sovereign. Mm-hmm. Um, we've worked with them on a, a lot of renewable uh, projects. And um, How many have they got from you? How many um, they've S-O-C? installed about 1,000 SOC oh, pumps with us. Yeah. That's um, really cool. And I was talking to... Um, to one of their um, project managers, a chap called Rob Hicks, about um, what what's the driver behind this, and he said it's all about affordable warmth. So we then start to move towards um, obviously the points you were saying there, a comfortable roof over your head, yeah. and then that affordability side of things as well, which obviously is an obligation on them moving forward. And obviously they've got the constraints with them in terms of um, carbon net zero yeah. affordability. Yeah. But also, I think what's great with housing associations is. Um, they're not seen to make a massive profits and they take a long-term view. Do you know what I mean? You've got a lot of great housing associations, not-for-profit ones, who are thinking about a 30-year, 40-year, 50-year plan. Um, you know, we've, got, we've got 2.5 million people in Britain in fuel poverty. That means they cannot afford to pay their heating bills and they have to make a decision about whether they're going to eat or heat their house. Isn't that mad? Like 2.5 million. 2.5 million people. 9,700 deaths per year happen through the winter, particularly with the elderly, um, because it's related to cold homes. Their, their homes are so cold. And, and this is a, a NHS stat. 9,700 deaths occur over the winter that are directly related to cold homes. So that's people having to make a judgment as to whether they can physically turn their heating system on because they might not be able to afford to pay their bill. I mean, what are we doing? That's, that's, <laughs> like, that's mad. Well, it's, it's just mad. What, we, what we're seeing in a lot of social housing providers is um, a lot of projects we've worked on is replacing some very antiquated, expensive technologies, such as resistive heating. We see a lot of vulnerable and old people with maybe a you know, three or four kilowatt bar heater in one room the rest of the house becomes damp, cold. They're sat in the front room and they have high energy bills or they're worried about turning the rest of the heaters on. And as you were saying, the on costs of that potentially to society and themselves in terms of health, well-being, it's a real implication there. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, but social housing and council housing, it's um, you've got new build and you've got retrofit, you know, because you, sometimes you're dealing with very old properties and, you know, in some ways we've got quite poor housing stock because we've got a lot of old housing stock. You know, we've got masses of Victorian buildings, haven't we? Masses of them, masses of Edwardian buildings as well. A lot of stuff that was built in the 1930s, massive building boom, huge building boom in the 1950s. Um, and it's, it's quite aged stock and it's kind of miles off where you'd want to be, even with the current building regulations. And I think that's a big challenge for housing associations and councils really about what you do with those buildings to keep them going and keep them energy efficient or try and make them energy efficient because some of them are, are so dated. Again, it comes down to money, doesn't it? It's always cost, cost, yep. cost, cost. But I don't know, I, keep, I just keep thinking that we can't afford to not do it. You know, we, we should be doing it really. And, and, be, and, and actually at the end of the day, a lot of it's about inefficiency, isn't it? So we spend all this money heating our houses in probably quite an inefficient way. And that heat has literally gone out the windows and out the roof. Do you know what I mean? Yep. It's, it's actually just wasteful, isn't it? You know, if we've got better designed houses, 
to a better eco standard and they're using green technologies, you know, air source heat pumps, solar panels, etc. They become better places to live, more affordable places to live in the long term. I know it might not seem affordable in the short term because you've got to buy the kit and, and get it installed. But it's just about being efficient and not being wasteful. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And, and in some ways, actually making a, um, an existing building eco-friendly is a very, very ecological thing to do because there's a lot of embodied energy already in that house. You know, it's to demolish a house and rebuild a brand spank, a new one. You could argue that you've got rid of all the bricks and mortar and the roof tiles and the roof trusses that are already there. Uh, that probably just gets crushed up and put in landfill somewhere. Um, but there's also a balance and act because some buildings are so tired and so knackered, it's probably cheaper to demolish them start again. and start again from scratch um, rather than retrofitting to a maybe not as high a standard as what you would do as new builds. So these are all like shifting things that housing associations have got to balance all the time. It's not, it's not an easy job, but I think the end goal is the same with all housing. We want to be, you know, zero carbon by 2050. We want to be less wasteful. We want to be more energy efficient rather than being really inefficient. We want to reduce fuel poverty. What's the point in spending loads of money heating a bad house? You know what I mean? It's just, it's pointless, isn't it? It's, it's bad for everybody. The Mitsubishi Electric Ikadan air source heat pump switched from fossil fuels like oil, LPG and storage heaters to clean, renewable home heating. Visit ultraquietikadan.co.uk for more information. Ikadan, serious about sustainability. So the point you were making there about um, new build starting again, um, versus retrofit, uh, we know that to make, um, if you were to start from scratch right now, uh, building a, a greener home is a lot easier to do than um, say some of the houses that are harder to insulate, um, you know, harder to retrofit potential technologies. Um, there was a recent report by um, the Sustainable Energy Association, which um, cited um, the social housing sector as being, um, you know, an exemplar in terms of difficult circumstances, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. but still having the, the drive and enthusiasm and ability to turn some of these properties around and absolutely. make them into a affordable housing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the great thing about um, anyone providing social housing at the minute, they do it because, not just because there's a genuine need, which there is, but it's because they care and they're not looking to make massive profits from it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> We could go down a different path with this chat because, you know, since the management of some buildings is contracted out to private companies, things go wrong. Grenfell Tower, prime example. You know, that's that was a state-built tower. Lots of apartments have been sold off under right to buy. And then you've got a separate management company who comes in to manage the building. You know, there was, um, I think there was a blog, I think it was taken down. Uh, it was one of the residents who'd been in that building for years said it's a death trap in here and there's going to be a fire and mass loss of life if they don't get this sorted out. And that was like two or three years before the fire happened. And that's an example again, I think, of uh, profit before people. 
if I'm honest. And so that's why I keep coming back to the same point of a free market, which is designed to make a profit, probably isn't the right vehicle for the design, construction and management and maintenance of social yeah. housing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and yeah. I, think, I think housing associations do <clears throat> staggeringly brilliant work. I really, really do. They're amazing. And, and there are exemplar projects out there, even from councils. I mean, Norwich Council have just been awarded the Sterling Prize, which is the greatest prize in British architecture um, for a council house scheme. Amazing. I mean, that's like, that's unheard of. It was only three years ago that I think a house actually won the Sterling Prize. It's normally like the Shard and all that, you know, big stuff, you know, huge transportation buildings or, I don't know, the Olympic Stadium or something like that. That's, that's normally the type of project that gets nominated for the Sterling Prize. And this was a council house scheme. And it was fantastic. Really good architects, really good quality materials, a council that really cared. Um, financially worked. Uh, thankfully, Norwich Council have got some pennies because they've been managed very well. Um, and so they had to put a bit more money in to get that quality. But I think it was something like £8,000 more per property to get it up to that standard. Spread that over. Those buildings will be there for 150 years because they're really good. So spread that eight tiny, grand. Tiny on cost per year. It's nothing, you know, as an on cost. And, and I think the mix there, so most estates that are built now, I say most because not a lot of them do actually meet their affordable social housing requirement is, um, you know, 80% private, 20% is going to be affordable housing. And, and uh, how do you define affordable these days? You know, because you, you've got social housing and affordable housing. So affordable housing is 80% of market rent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. that's still not affordable based on some of the stuff we've talked about already. But the nice thing in Norwich is they, instead of doing 80% private, 20% affordable or social, theirs was 70% council and 30% private. And they needed to have the 30% private because they needed to get some money in and capital receipts to put into the better quality council housing. Okay. Yeah, for that, I mean, that is a game changer. Totally. Absolute game changer. Let's, let's talk a bit more about, um, it's all about affordability. Let's go back to affordable warmth and, um, you know, looking at- I like that, affordable warmth. Affordable warmth. About looking- it, just, it just like feels cosy, doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. It's lovely, lovely that. Talk about the, um, the residents and social house. So um, we've noticed, you know, so, social housing providers, councils, they, they embrace and look at these new technologies. Quite A lot of them are early adopters. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got some great success stories. But in terms of the, the technology and embracing, um, this is all about, for, for us, we think this is about education because- mm-hmm. You have a large-scale rollout, for example, of um, heat pumps across um, a retrofit project. Um, what we've found crucially is the the ability for the provider to educate, teach, um, and just notify the residents what to expect. Um, and as soon as that happens, you know, education, 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 yeah. um, <clears throat> it becomes um, a fascinating topic across the development or the estate, people are talking about the new technology. So we've but found- I, I still get loads of people in the industry asking me what an air source heat pump is. Yeah, and they're in, yeah. they're in the industry, you know, in the UK construction. What's that? So for so many people, it's still very, very new. I mean, you guys have been developing it for years. So it's kind of second nature to you now, but it is about getting the message out. I mean, that's why we're doing this as well, isn't it? It's for people to really understand the need 
for this sort of technology to be used because it does make sense and it does make a difference. And so, yeah, education is yeah. absolutely everything as well as pennies because it's, it all, it will always come down to money at the end of the day. And I think what's brilliant about the housing associations that Mitsubishi Electric are working with is that they're being innovative, they're being forward thinking. Yes, they realize it's going to be a, a little bit of extra capital cost, but they take the long-term view. I mean, part of my council house campaign or social housing campaign, whatever you want to call it, I was saying build 100,000 houses, council houses, every year for the next 30 years, like a 30-year plan. Now, even if we do that, that's still not, en- it's nearly enough to replenish the stock that we've lost through right to buy since the early 1980s. Do you know what I mean? So that will just get us back to where we were, roughly. But I think the exciting thing about that is it's, it's stability for the industry because we're in a boom and bust industry. You know, when, when there's a recession, the construction industry gets hit really hard. Really hard. After the credit crunch, for, I mean, we're doing 220-something thousand houses. I think we were down to like 80,000. It might have even been less. And, you know, that's jobs. That's And jobs everywhere from brick-making factories to roof tile factories to door handle manufacturers, not just people physically on site putting it all together. Yeah, the whole supply chain. Yeah, so we could, the government could create a very good relatively stable construction industry by state building again. Let, let the private house builders carry on doing their thing. That's fine. They, they do it. They deliver. They get them built. That's absolutely fine. Let them do all the private housing that the nation needs. But I think the state should be building the stuff that the state needs. Do you know what I mean? The truly yeah, in affordable a, in stuff. In a sustainable way. In a really sustainable, long-term thinking way. And again, someone will say, oh, the country can't afford it. Well, do you know what? If we really want to do something, we make it happen. You know, when the banks went bust, we bailed them out 50 odd billion. You know, that was an investment. I don't think we got that money back, to be honest with you. Um, furlough scheme. Furlough. It's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, it's a, that scheme has saved millions of jobs. Fantastic. Boom. If that's cost us 50 billion, fine. Let's get on and do it. If we need to do it, let's do it. But with housing, it's an investment. It's not a loss. It really isn't. I mean... The stats are, in some ways, they're kind of, they're quite simple, I think, because the amount of money that we're spending on housing benefit, the amount of money that's going to, you know, private landlords, all of that could be money that is reinvested. And during the campaign, the numbers that I was doing, it wasn't even massive, really. Like if you put in a 20% grant for the 100,000 houses that need to be built, that's 4 billion quid a year. We can afford 4 billion quid in this country easily. I think of the 25 billion we're paying in housing benefit, 9 billion goes to private landlords in the private rented sector. So just by putting 20% in as grant funding from central government would massively help councils to be able to generate the rest of the revenue to get these properties built. 4 billion a year, 100,000 houses, boom. Sounds like simple maths. Well, it's simple, but we've got a government, and I'm going to get in massive trouble for saying this, but I don't care. Um, We've got a government obsessed by home ownership. Absolutely obsessed by home ownership. That is it. And that's why they bring in um, all the kind of starter initiatives for you to get on the property ladder. And this has worked for some people. It absolutely has worked. Um, It helped to buy 
schemes. Um, they've got a first-time buyer scheme, which I just, I think it's nuts, to be honest. Um, just obsessed by home ownership. Well, we can't just have that. You know, we need that, but you can't just have that because it hasn't worked, has it? I mean, we're in a complete mess now because the system hasn't worked properly. So if it doesn't work, you've got to change it and fix it. But I think through all of this and taking a long-term approach to be as green and sustainable as possible, being very innovative in technology, not just with kit, like SOC pumps, but the fabric of the building and everything, we we should just be doing it. You know, we, and I, I, I get in lots of trouble for checking out grand statements sometimes, but in the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, right? It basically said everyone has the right to adequate housing, right? This is a UN act that we signed. Loads of governments across the world signed it. Countries, so many of them signed up for it. And it says that that right to adequate housing should be seen as the right to live somewhere in security, peace, and dignity. So that basically means Britain, as well as America and everyone else, have failed in that declaration that they signed. So it's a global thing. It's not just a British thing. Honestly, it's, it's, it's madness, really. Get the housing right, everything else has got a chance. So, mate, it's, it's almost like it's the, excuse the, uh, the pun, but it's, it's essentially the foundation for society, isn't it? Decent housing. It really is. It really is. And, and yeah, I know I've mentioned shelter already, but I've seen the impact on... You know, kids, health, education, you know, you've got families in one room. It's like, honestly, it's like Victorian slum stuff. It's mad. It's like going back to the bad old days of British housing. And that's why Addison brought in the act in 1919 to say, this is not acceptable and we need to do things differently. And that's just been smashed to pieces since Thatcher messed yeah. things up, isn't it? So, so kind of wrapping all this up now, George, in conclusion to the, you know, we've had a, we've danced around quite a lot of areas here in terms of. Um, Just a bit. If you were to wrap it up, if you were, you know, in housing minister now, how would you, succinctly, what, what, what would you do in terms of, you know, in the next year or two, in terms of to get policy moving? Well, I mean, in a previous podcast, we talked uh, an awful lot um you know, about new build housing and retrofits and if you like the green economy associated with housing and, um, you know, the future home standards, all of that needs to be pushed much, much harder. Um, we don't need to go to consultation for years thinking about it. We just need to get on and do it. So if I'm honest, I think the government need to have bigger balls and, and just do the right thing. Um, and then alongside that, have a state building program you know, whether the, whether the councils themselves physically build it or they get someone else to build it, it doesn't matter. But I think it needs to be state-owned housing, a genuine, genuine affordable rents for people desperately in need. Yeah. Because that's, that's why we've created this massive, unaffordable, very expensive property bubble, because we've taken affordable housing, council housing, social housing out the market. So all the green stuff, and build state housing because the private sector don't want to do it. I've sat in meetings myself with house builders where they've gone, great news. We've got rid of the social housing requirement or the affordable housing requirement. It's brilliant. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, it's not. It's not brilliant. That's awful. 
absolutely awful. And because of all of that, you have this terrible stigma. I mean, for me, we should kind of stop labeling housing. Like you're in private, you're in council, you're in social. Ooh, council. Oof. That's really bad. I do not want to live next to someone in a council house. What? There's just a stigma attached to council housing and social housing. And I, and I think the labeling on a simple level is, is bad because it automatically creates that stigma. You know, oh, you're in private housing. You must be really, you know, you're good. All about, you know, all about ownership. And yeah, and it's yeah. like, what, you're in a council house? Now, my, my 1968 house in London, my townhouse, was a council house. Uh, built by um, the Greater London Council back in the day. And obviously it was bought underwriter by, it cost me a fortune. You know, I, I didn't buy it underwriter by, it was bought by someone years and years ago and it's been in a few different families since. It cost me an absolute fortune to buy the house. Like loads and loads and loads of money. And um, sometimes cabbies will drop me off and they'll go, do you live in there? You're in like one of those council houses. And I'm like, yeah, and I love it actually. It's brilliant. Great space standards. Ecologically, I've raised the standards, you know, triple glazing, insulation, air source heat pump. It's a brilliant, brilliant little house. I love it. Absolutely love it. But the stigma is, you live in one of them. And when they come in, if anyone comes into my house, I haven't invited black cabbies into my house, by the <laughs> way. But you know, if people come into my house, they walk in and they're like, oh my God, this is really beautiful. Now, I didn't spend a fortune doing it, really. I mean, that's a house that's been there since 1968. The money that I've put into it will make that house sustainable for another hundred years. Um, but that stigma is really bad, I think. I just, I just don't like it. And it's come about, really, because we haven't built enough of them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so there's the solution. So stop labelling. Yeah, stop labelling. So we've covered an awful lot there, George. Um, so there you have it, everyone. So social housing, the sustainable heating solution. Uh, huge thanks to my guest, George Clark, for coming on the show. Thank you, George. Pleasure. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, check out our other episodes in this series and please share, subscribe, rate and view the Ikadan Serious About Sustainability podcast. And I love that, by the way, because like Serious About Sustainability is SAS. That's like, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. hardcore. <laughs> I love that. Excellent. Until next time. Goodbye, everyone.